Thank you, Jason, for that song. Thank you all for being here. It's a blessing for me to be before you this morning, and I hope that you will be benefited by the lesson of the morning. I know I have been by the study that put into learning more about 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 contains very stirring language about the victory over death and hope beyond the grave for a Christian. We often hear the latter part of the chapter spoken on at memorial services. Brother Hugh spoke just a couple weeks ago how the Christian could, can handle loss. And it's through the hope that we have that's told to us about in 1 Corinthians 15. With a good understanding of the eternal hope we have through the gospel, we will be better equipped to face the grieving process and hold fast our faith even in the most difficult of circumstances. 1 Corinthians 15, taken as a whole, is a beautiful sermon penned by the Apostle Paul to convince the Christian of the power of the gospel and to remind us each of the far-reaching implications the gospel has on our eternity. But it does much more than just inform us. I believe 1 Corinthians 15 to the Christian is what Acts chapter 2 is to the sinner, a call to action. I believe the Apostle Paul very systematically lays out the anatomy of hope, if you will, for the Christian in this chapter. Gross anatomy is the study of the human body, and, is give, and in any given course, the student answers approximately 10,000 questions about the various systems, organs, and tissues of the body. Through dissection, the student can evaluate each individual part to understand its role in the collective function of the body. If we take this same approach to the hope that we have as Christians, we will find that a Christian's hope is found in Jesus Christ, but more specifically, it's found in the gospel of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. This gospel may not seem as complex as the human body, but its consequences are even more pivotal and profound to us as human beings. I believe through examination we can gain much-needed information to build our faith upon, which will lend to an even greater hope in our salvation. Paul gives the Christian the facts, the evidence, the implications, and the application of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The facts of the gospel are straightforward, but they are very profound. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4 says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The New American Standard Bible renders verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. It is of utmost importance that we never discount what Christ had to go through to bring us out of sin and into the body of Christ. We must not forget the cruelty of the cross, along with the pain, the suffering, the torture, abandonment, and humiliation that Christ went through leading up to the crucifixion, and also the agony associated with someone being nailed to a cross, writhing in pain until they become so weak that they can no longer pull themselves up to catch another breath. The facts of the gospel are Jesus Christ, the blameless Son of God, died on the cross for our sins, not His own. 
He was buried in a tomb, and on the third day he rose from the grave, never to die again. These three facts liberate the Christian from the sin that we have in our life when they are coupled with action on our part. Paul preceded the facts of the gospel in verses 1 and 2. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. If, a small little word, but it's a conditional term stating one result when conditions are met and another different result when they're not. When the gospel and teachings of Christ are heard, received, acted upon and kept in memory, they bring salvation to the one that does them. But when not heard, not received, not acted upon, or not kept in memory, they bring the opposite of salvation, damnation. The gospel is the central event in all of history, and it is the foundation for the truth that our faith as Christians must be centered upon. If we lose sight of the gospel, then our spiritual house will not endure the storms of life that come upon each and every one of us in, these, in this life. These gospel facts the Christians at Corinth knew by heart, I'm sure. But the Apostle Paul knew they were foundational points that Satan attacks at every turn as he tries to destroy the faith of every Christian. In the early church, men regularly began teaching false doctrines about Christ. And those that had a weak faith would be led astray. The Apostle Paul warned the elders from Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the flock of God, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. As also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. One of the popular false teachings of that time came from the Jews, and that was that the gospel was insufficient in bringing people to salvation. They taught that parts of the Jewish law were needed to bring sanctification, to make the person holy so that they could become just before God. The Apostle Paul addressed this thought in the book of Galatians. Very pointedly, he says this is in error. For Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And as I said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. That's very strong language. But there were still others called Gnostics that Paul and John addressed in their letters that said Jesus wasn't really human, that he only appeared to be. But if he wasn't human, then he could not shed his blood and he could not be the atoning sacrifice for us. The list of heresies both in the first century and even today are endless. It doesn't matter how mature we may think we are in our walk with Christ. We need to be reminded of the simple facts of the gospel because it is the gospel that saves each and every one of us. 
Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul continues in this chapter, after laying the foundation, after showing the facts, he also brings forth the evidence that gives us ironclad proof that these facts are accurate. Paul continues his exposition on the gospel by remembering, by reminding the Corinthians of these evidences. In verses 5 through 11, he reminds them that Peter, James, all the remaining apostles, more than 500 people at once, and finally Paul himself saw the resurrected Christ. These claims made by people of seeing Christ in the flesh were not made in a remote area far removed from the events of the gospel. The majority of these encounters happened in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, the same town that the events of the gospel took place. And this happened in the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Christ ascended at Bethany, only a mile and a half east of Jerusalem on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives. It was only 10 days after Christ ascended and a mere seven weeks after his resurrection, that the Apostle Peter stood up in Jerusalem and delivered the first gospel sermon that is recorded in Acts chapter 2. Peter very pointedly accused the people in attendance of killing the Son of God. He noted the miracles that Jesus had done before them, the prophecies fulfilled in Christ, and the fact that God had resurrected him from the dead, facts that they knew to be true. All the Jews had to do at this time was present the body of Christ, and Christianity, be, Christianity would, be, would be squashed. It would be stopped in its tracks. But they couldn't, and after the invitation given by Peter on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people obeyed the gospel in baptism. As the German theologian Paul Althus wrote, the resurrection proclamation could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day or for a single hour if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. As Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6, most of the people that were witnesses were still alive at the time of his writing, which was about 55 to 57 AD. That means 25 years after the resurrection, there were more than 250 people still around that had personally seen Jesus alive in the flesh after his death. These were common people from different walks of life that had different views on life but they saw Jesus in the flesh. It was also during this time period that the apostles did many miracles in the sight of the people, proving the gospel that they taught was true. I remind you of the account of Peter and John from Acts chapter 3 and 4, only one chapter later, and a few days later. Peter and John go up to the temple to pray. They encounter a man that's been laid at the gate. He's been crippled from birth. He looks up to them and he starts to beg them for money. They look, both look at him, and Peter turns to him and says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Then Peter takes him by the right hand and lifts him up. And the Bible says, And he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. It's doubtless that there were many people who knew this man, who he was, where he came from, what his origin was, 
And they were amazed because they saw him walking and praising God. Because he hadn't been laid at the temple just for days, but probably for weeks, if not years. Verse 2 of chapter 3 tells us that the man was laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. In verse 22 of Acts chapter 4, we find that the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. As I said before, Acts chapters 3 and 4 were only months, if not weeks or days, after the ascension of Christ. So this man had been born lame, lame at least seven years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. So he had been laid at the temple for this time daily, day after day, and the people saw him. Just imagine how many people he had seen through the years, how many people he had gotten to know, how many people had looked upon him on, in, with pity in their heart, but they were unable to change his lot in life. Now, this man that they've seen countless times, he is healed. He's walking, he's leaping, he's praising God, and he turns and he embraces Peter and John. I can't think of anything else I would have done. Seeing the great stir that's been called, caused, Peter takes opportunity and delivers a powerful gospel sermon to everyone in the temple, much like he did in Acts chapter 2. The priests, captain of the temple, and Sadducees became upset with the great commotion because Peter was preaching Christ and him resurrected from the dead. So they put Peter and John in jail. But this didn't keep God's word, which had been confirmed by the miracle performed in the presence of these people, from fulfilling its intended purpose. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. 5,000 men. If you include the wives and children of these 5,000 men, it would not be unreasonable for the number of converts to Christianity to be between ten and 15,000 people that day. The next day, the high priest and the Jewish ruler set Peter and John before them and asked them, by what power or by what name have you done this? You know, the Jews should have learned their lesson. Paul had, Peter has continually gotten up and preached powerful, powerfully of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he does so once again in their presence. And it's this sermon that, this same sermon, as with all of them that he's preached, that continue to be used to convert people to Christ even today. Beginning in verse 8, he says, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which is set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. Now when they heard, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. They marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could not say no, they could say nothing against it, but when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Peter said it was the power of the risen Christ that this man was made whole through. Even the wicked Jews that killed Christ and hated Christianity, could not deny the power 
and the wonder that they were a witness to. Events like this happened over and over in the first century, giving credence to this way of Christ and hope to the believers. At the end of the first century, as John writes his first general epistle to the churches, he reminds the Christians of the eyewitness accounts that they were undoubtedly that they had undoubtedly heard and read about through the years. First John chapter one verses one through four. That which, was, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. I believe the eyewitness accounts of the risen Christ and the miracles performed by his followers give us enough reason to put our hope firmly in the gospel of Christ. But that's not all the evidence that we have. We have much more evidence. History itself gives us even more proof that the gospel is true. Every one of the apostles alive after the resurrection of Christ suffered persecution for their faith. Not a single one recanted or denied the resurrection when faced with persecution or death. History, with a considerable, considerable amount of reliability, tells us that all but one was killed for their faith. James, the brother of John, was killed by the sword. We find this in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. History tells us that both Clement of Alexandria and Eusebius report that after seeing the courage and unrecanting spirit of James, the executioner himself was so convinced of Christ's resurrection that he was executed along with him. Philip was crucified. Matthew was beheaded. James the Lesser was thrown off the temple and clubbed to death. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul beheaded. Andrew crucified. Thomas gored with spears and burned alive. Matthias stoned while being crucified. Bartholomew flayed and crucified. Judas, Judas Thaddeus beaten to death with sticks. Simon the Zealot cut in half. The only one not killed was the Apostle John who was exiled on the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. If these men did not actually see Christ alive after his death, then they knowingly suffered and died for a lie. It takes a blind leap of faith and a total disregard for human nature to believe that these men would endure all this knowing that it was all for naught. After providing the evidence to back up the facts of the gospel in verses 5 through 11, Paul gives the implications of the gospel throughout the remainder of the chapter. Those implications are great and many, but I would like to notice just a few with you this morning. In verses 12 through 23, Paul makes it clear that without the gospel, specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ, life is pointless at best. There's no hope beyond the grave. And those that have died already cease to exist and will never arise again. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19 says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Think about that. Everything that we do in this life is for naught. 
if Christ is not risen from the dead. But as he had already proven earlier in the chapter, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Christ is risen from the dead. And that gives us hope to one day arise with him. Verse 20 says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that sleep. The first implication of the gospel is that death is necessary. We must die physically in order to receive an eternal body. 1 Corinthians chapter 35 verse, through thir- verse 37 says, But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which was so, thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body shall, that shall be but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or some other grain. Paul responds in terms that we can understand. As farmers, we know that you don't plant an entire stalk of mature corn in the ground expecting to get one entire stalk of mature mature corn out of the ground at harvest. But neither do you plant a single grain of corn expecting to have a plant that produces a single grain in return. But you plant one small, seemingly dead kernel that holds within it the God-given potential of life. And that seemingly insignificant seed can bring forth a bountiful harvest. On average, an ear of corn will produce 800 to 1,200 kernels. What an amazing harvest. In the same way, our physical bodies pale in comparison to the bodies that we have in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 53. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. God fashioned man and woman in his image in the garden without the expectation of death. When Adam and Eve sinned, mankind was separated from that perfect relationship that they enjoyed in the garden with God. And God's punishment for sin was that man's physical body would deteriorate and no longer last for eternity. Because of sin, our bodies become corrupt and unable to last. That corrupted body must die in order for the new incorruptible one to come to life. Just like that kernel of corn producing that far greater stalk of corn. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 42 through 44. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Not only would they die physically, Adam and Eve also died spiritually the moment they partook of the fruit. And the path had to be made to bring them back from the corruption of sin to perfection with Christ. Like Adam and Eve, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we find this in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Our carnal man must put on death. Our carnal man must be put to death while we are alive on this earth so that we can become spiritually alive in Christ. If we do not put to death this sensual man, then the eternal body we receive in the resurrection 
will be reserved for eternal damnation. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29 says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming and in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, but they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. The only way that mankind can traverse the path back to God is by being born again. John chapter 3 and verse 3. Now this was a very hard thing for people to understand. And maybe it's hard for some of us to understand if we have not been taught it from a child or if we have not been around it from our earliest time. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Here, Christ said, Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Baptism is how we die to the flesh and arise in the Spirit. It is how we are born again of water and the Spirit. I remind you of Romans chapter 6, beginning verse 3. Apostle Paul says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that we, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin." Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. That brings us the hope that we have in the gospel. The power of God over sin and death. Since we're dead to sin, we're... When we're baptized into the death of Christ, we no longer have to worry about being raised with an eternal body reserved for everlasting damnation after our physical death. Physical death no longer is the enemy it once was to the Christian, but merely a transition from being alive spiritually in a mortal body to being alive spiritually, and in an eternal body. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning verse 54, says, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing the consequences of the gospel, Christians have a hope beyond the grave. Not just any hope, but a hope that is just as sure and steadfast as Jesus Christ is alive today. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 6, 
Verse 19 says, Which hope we have as an anchor to the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into the, that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This hope is an anchor for our soul, an anchor that is firmly placed beyond the veil of death in the presence of God, in our eternal reward in heaven above. Finally, when we look at death through the lens of the gospel, we cannot help but be moved to action. We can't help but be inspired to pursue a closer relationship with the one that has released us from the bondage of sin and death and glorify him with our every being. Paul closes out this chapter by saying, Therefore, my beloved brethren, in other words, realizing the hope that we have in heaven through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the assurance we have that Christ truly did rise from the grave, this is what you should do. Verse 58, Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Be steadfast. That brings to my mind the house built on the solid foundation in Matthew chapter 24. No matter what storm, no matter what storm life brought upon it, it was able to withstand it because it was anchored to the solid rock of God's word. Unmovable makes me think of the righteous man Job when he faced every trial, temptation, and heartache one can imagine in this life, he remained faithful to his God. He did not change his actions. He did not change his view on God. He worshiped God and praised him for being God when he was the richest man in the East and when he had nothing to his name, when he had lost everything. Job 1, verse 20, Then Job arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshiped. He worshiped and said, Naked came I out of the, my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. We need to realize that heartache, loss, trials, and just pure bad luck will happen to each and every one of us in this life. When we do not put our hope in God and the salvation we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ but we put it in these temporal things that we have in this life then we will be sadly discouraged we will be tempted to blame God as Job was tempted and we will be tempted to be cynical about life and to lose our faith in God but if we will strive to be steadfast and unmovable and have that firm foundation firmly set in the Word of God and our hope firmly placed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we will be able to abound in the work of the Lord. We will recognize every day as an opportunity to serve God so that we can fulfill His plan for us in every role that we have in this life. As fathers... Realizing the gravity of our role, we will lead our homes, train our children, and defend our families from the temptations of Satan. 
As servants, we will work for our masters as if we were working for Jesus Christ himself. As men, women, wives, children, the list goes on, we will pursue holiness and allow God to mold us into vessels equipped to fulfill his will on the earth. We will realize that God is faithful and just, and the gift we have in Jesus Christ far outweighs anything we could ever do to repay God for the love he has shown us through his Son. I believe there are a couple more verses in this chapter worth noting that call us to actions as Christians. They are verses 33 and 34. Verse 33 says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. No one is immune to being affected by being surrounded continually by evil influences. We must realize that we too are vulnerable to temptation and sin. We must guard our hearts and minds from its influences and surround ourselves with godly people. Verse 34 says, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Ignorance of the Christian is no excuse for sin. We cannot be willfully ignorant of God's commands and expect God to wink at our sin. We must awake to righteousness. I think of the example of Zacchaeus. When he realized his sin of covetousness, he awoke to the fact that he needed to repent and make things right. Luke 19, verses 8 through 10. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto them, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. This morning the facts of the gospel are simple, but so profound. The evidence given to us by God provides proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus Christ is truly risen from the grave. The implications are far-reaching and undeniable. The only question is, will you accept the truth of the gospel and plant your anchor firmly in the hope of the gospel and plant it in eternity? Because that's where your hope lies if you're a Christian. Or will you reject it? Will you strive each day to pour out yourself in service to God so that the hope of heaven is seen in your life? And the way you walk and the way you talk and the way you act and the way you interact with those people you come in contact in this life. I pray this morning that you are better equipped to give a ready answer for the reason of the hope that is within you. That hope being Jesus Christ and Him risen from the dead. If you have not obeyed the gospel this morning, the same invitation that Peter gave to those on the day of Pentecost is extended to you today. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. If you're a Christian, the admonition is from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The lesson is yours this morning. If you desire the prayers of the church or desire to put on Christ in baptism, please come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.